You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, friends. Can y'all hear me okay? There we go. Good morning, friends. Uh, My name is Matt Younger. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If we've never had the privilege of meeting, uh, I uh, get to finish our Judges series today, which is uh, a thrill for me. So if you want to turn to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 13, we'll get started. Um, I had the benefit, while you're doing that, let me tell you a story. I had the benefit of going um, on the Israel trip just a few weeks ago uh, with my wife, Dana, and it was extraordinary. I'm still processing it. And uh, Shay and Mike Slade and the two guys that led it really set me up well, uh, knowing that I would preach on Samson. They actually brought me to Samson's hometown, a place called Bet Shemesh. Uh, kind of looks like the middle of East Texas with a little more mountains on the background. Uh, but uh, it was a fun place to go. And the reason why it was is you can learn a lot about uh, history through archaeology. You guys know this. Um, but what you're able to do or to see in Bet Shemesh is to see kind of like the different time periods, if you will, um, because you guys know that that land, long before God's people ever came in to take the land, uh, that was the land of the Canaanites. And then that goes all the way again, obviously, to modern day. I was there just a few weeks ago. But um, if, if you uh, listen to archaeologists, here's what they'll tell you, that before um, God gave his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to take that land, again, it was the land of the Canaanites, and you can find that time period. And what you can find of that time period uh, is that they sacrificed a lot of pigs and they ate a lot of pigs. And so much so that about 50% of all animal bones, over 6,000 bones were found in that time period in the dirt. And then you can actually trace that time period uh, as kind of the conquest of the land happens by the Israelites. And you can see a gradual reduction of how many pig bones there are. So much so that like in the time of Solomon, there's only 1% all the way to Hezekiah. And when you get to Hezekiah's time period, uh, there's 0%. They can't find any um, uh, examples or any evidence that people were eating pigs or sacrificing pigs, which, which, is, which was amazing. Uh, even more amazing than that was Peter's great vision, right, that happens many, many years later where God tells him that pigs are more than okay, which means uh, you and I can uh, smoke some ribs this fall as we watch the Aggies play uh, in the SEC, right? Um, but that's neither here nor there. They went full kosher, which is awesome. There's this process of distinction that we see in the story of Israel. You know this, perhaps. Deuteronomy 7 says about this land that's promised. The Lord's going to bring you to that land, and here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to clear away the nations that are there. You're going to need to defeat them. Um, Make no covenant with them. Don't intermarry with them. And don't intermarry with them because they would turn your sons away from following me and, in, and instead, they would follow other gods. And so why is Israel called to be distinct? Because they're better? No, 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 but because they're different. And what God's saying about his covenant community is you're not going to sacrifice babies like they do. Um, you're not going to make offerings to false gods. Your marriages will be rooted in covenant, God's love for you and your covenant love for one another. And really, the whole upshot of this is that through this little nation of Israel— all the nations of the world would be blessed by you, that they would see your distinctness and God's love for you and your love, that they would actually know Yahweh by the way you live. And that's the story. 
And yet we find ourselves in really an expose of that story. Um, That's what the book of Judges is, where things have not gone right and where everybody has, to quote the book, uh, done evil in the uh, sight of the Lord, not living distinct. And so here we are, um, hands down, far and away, with the most anticipated judge of all of them. Nobody had more fanfare than Samson. Nobody. Like, nobody. He is the one who is long foretold. Will he finally be the one to deliver Israel from the people around them? And if you know his story, you know the answer is a resounding no. Well, it's a kind of no. We'll get to the end of the story. Archaeologists during the time of Samson still find the remnants of 25% pig bones. The reality is that compromise was the thread that runs through the life of Samson, his much-anticipated life. And so I think the thing that we have to answer as we kind of look at Samson's life and, and as we consider our own, I think we have to answer this question. To what extent is compromising affecting the, a promise, uh, the promise on our lives to live distinctly as well? And so with that in mind, let's look at his story. Okay, so uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we'll look at his birth. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's the backdrop. And then there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and he had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son." And therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is a really big deal. Really, does his birth story sound like anybody else we know? Miraculous, set apart from the womb? Yes, you know the answer to that question. Moreover, um, the Nazarite vow is involved. What's the Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow is found in number six, uh, almost exclusively something that an, uh, that an adult would pledge. Uh, and that was really three things. One, uh, to take the Nazarite vow was to say, I'm not gonna get a haircut. That's why I'm wearing my hair long today for you guys. Um, you would drink nothing from the vine, grape juice or any kind of ferment. Uh, and then you would not touch anything dead. And that was your way uh, to like especially consecrate yourself, uh, to have an intense focus, to beseech God for blessing, your long hair would have stood out. So again, most adults take this vow um, as adults, and yet Samson is to be a Nazarite from the womb, the miracle baby. Why? Because he's set apart to deliver God's people. And yet in his birth story, verse 24 gives us a little clue as it tells us about Samson. It says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. There's this little clue here that perhaps uh, Israel's desire to be distinct was not really in their heart. And the reason why that was is because the name Samson means little son, And sun, like the sun that shines, was one of the Canaanite gods. And so in naming him Samson, 
there are commentators who believe that they're actually giving respect to the foreign gods of the land. And what's interesting in this story, it's not like there's, you know, there's other stories in the Bible where there's this like clear abject walking away from God. And that's not exactly what Israel's doing. They're just becoming more like the nations. That's what's happening in this story. And so that's not unlike the modern temptation to say, how do we make what we believe palatable to the world and then what we do palatable to God? It's a similar temptation. And so we have a little preview before we dive into his life. And the preview is this. Samson's life is proof positive that spiritual promise is not enough at all. In fact, Samson is extraordinarily gifted by God but that won't be enough because his character will not line up with his gifting. So Samson's gonna be given just like Adam, just like us. He's gonna be completely given to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He's gonna completely walk away from his vow. And yet amidst this, really even in opposition to God's calling on him, God's gonna use him. So we need to start with something that's probably the best known quality of Samson's life and that was his sexual ethic. Sexual brokenness permeates this brother's life. He is carnal. Uh, If he was alive today, I'm pretty sure he would be on Tinder, okay? Um, He has uh, uh, a situation with the prostitute of Gaza in chapter 16. We have Delilah's story, which leads to his downfall. We'll be there in a second. But let's key in on one of the first stories with uh, Samson. So chapter 14 verses one and three, when he meets his first wife. Okay, so uh, 14 in verse one. So uh, Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people? that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So first thing to notice, Samson goes to a place that he should not to look for a wife. He, instead of finding a, uh, a, a Yahweh worshiper, a covenant keeping lady, uh, he goes outside of the fold, if you will, to find someone who would not have worshiped Yahweh, a non Israelite and who would not have given adherence to the covenant uh, of faith. And yet what Samson says, and I think this resonates with us, I really don't care about the calling. I want her. I want her. There's an interesting thing happening in the Hebrew where we see all throughout the story that Israel is doing what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And yet what's clear, the author of Judges is telling us is that Samson wants what is right in his eyes which is, I think, a a healthy, simple way for us to understand sin, the difference between what is right in our eyes and what's right in the Lord's eyes. And so his parents, and this is so interesting, his parents parents are going, okay, we remember the earliest promise of this little guy's life. And this is the promise. He's gonna deliver us from the Philistines, right? So Samson, she's kind of a Philistine, right? Like what? No, 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 like, no, they're the people that God's gonna deliver us from. And what Samson shows throughout his life is really two things. One, that he's impulsive. And really, secondly, he's allergic to wisdom. Um, he's just like, and, and as, as, as hard as it is to walk away from the wisdom of our parents today, 
How much more so would it have brought shame in this culture to dismiss the wisdom of your parents? But that's exactly what he does. What his parents are saying is like, hey, Sam, what this Philistine represents is bad for you, bad for us. You're to live distinctly. You're to deliver us. And Samson just has other plans. What are his parents trying to teach him? Well, maybe it's something like um, a recent situation I was in. I went to Florida with my family and my wife's family took us to Disney World. And uh, I have three kids and my youngest, Hudson, is the most like Samson. He's four. Uh, He's an alpha. He's a wild man. And, uh, you know, Disney World is just not a great place, I think, for kids to be obedient. That's just my sense. But, um, you know, very, uh, very affirming of, you know, the kid's centricity, right? But, um, but we were having a day with Hudson. Like, and, and guys, it was, a, it was a day. Like, it was like we were 15, 20 conversations. You know, it's like, Hudson, you cannot run into Cinderella's castle and steal that off the shelf. You cannot do that. And we were just having a day, and it was hot. Orlando's hot. Y'all know this, maybe. And I was at the end of my wits, and I just had a conversation with that little guy, and I sat him down. And this is something we've taught all of our kids. We've taught them this, and, and they, they would be able to tell it to you, I hope, that obedience brings joy and disobedience brings disaster. And so I had Hudson tell me that. And I said, Hudson, do you want joy or do you want disaster? And he looked at me and he just like, you know, crossed his arms and he just said, joy. And then, and then he looked down and he kind of gained his composure. And then his eyes kind of went like the Grinch. And he looked at me and he goes, disaster. <laughs> and, uh, and it was awesome, right? Because I'm just like, okay, at least he knows, right? At least he's fully aware of his broken humanity, as, is, as are we, as am I, as is Samson. Because what Samson's doing is just showing you what's in the human heart. Um, but here's what his parents are trying to do. His parents Like they know the stories, they know the covenant, they know that in Genesis it says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so God, Samson, Samson's parents telling Samson, calling Samson to an Israelite wife is not them trying to shackle him, it's them trying to protect him. Um, And you maybe hear the modern critique, right? The modern critique would be like, well, maybe that's not who Samson is, right? Maybe that's that's not Samson's truth. Maybe that's not who Samson wants to be. I don't know anything other than this. The ancient temptation is actually not so ancient. And what you can see in Samson's life is that sexual promiscuity leads to brokenness. That's what you can see in his life. And uh, it's gonna literally lead him blind, shackled and in a pit. And I believe you're in a room of people, many of whom are humble enough from our own stories, me included, to look you in the eye and to tell you sexual promiscuity today in 2021, even a non-covenantal understanding of love is going to do far less for you and pay far less dividends than you actually think it will. Um, I have been, you know, praying in preparation for this sermon. I, uh, I love you. I do not want to shame you. In this conversation, especially, I do not want to condemn you 
for past behavior, for current behavior. That's the last thing. I mean, I'm, guys, from my heart to yours, I'm trying to do the best I can to teach you and to help you. And I believe you're surrounded by men and women who would love to do the same to help you understand at times how hollow and how fragile and how fragmented the modern view of sex and marriage actually is. Um, you know, society, we all know this. I, believe, I think we're walking further and further away from this historic view of marriage, which would say one man and one woman in a commitment-based relationship, not a feelings-based, but a commitment-based. Um, and I think we're moving away from that to really marriage as self-actualizing, marriage as self-fulfilling uh, instead of self-giving. I think the kind of the modern view of marriage kind of looks at it this way where you go, what do I want in a spouse? Well, uh, I want somebody that's gonna raise my stock, make up for my insecurities, not mess with my freedom, not expect me to change and be pretty low maintenance unless they're a total babe. And uh, I think the reality is, is most of us know we're not total babes, right? And, uh, but I think that like the modern view of marriage is what do I get from it? Not what do I give to it? And I think we have to ask ourselves just honestly, how is this working out? Like, how is this working for us? I mean, the church, I think, used to lead the way in trying to speak kindly and wisely to the perils of pornography. I think the world might actually be ahead of us now. Like, all you have to do is listen to, like, Dak Shepard or Russell Brand or people who, who don't explicitly call themselves Christ followers, and they'll tell you just, like, how awful and damaging the effects of pornography are in a generation, not to mention to a generation, many of whom are in therapy, are learning over and over just how dehumanizing sex is without the emotional and protective support of covenant. And so what are, what are Samson's parents trying to teach him? What are they trying to teach us? They're uh, by calling Samson away from this woman, they're actually trying to spare him a thousand different sorrows. That's what mom and dad are trying to do. And man, I um, am especially, I think, tender because I look at Samson and I go, at least he had a mom and dad who tried. So many of us haven't had that, haven't had a mom and dad try to show us the way. And that's why the church itself can become a beautiful picture of spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who can help to give us the wisdom that Samson's clearly allergic to, but here's what I know. Until we get transformed away from a view of marriage that is what I get instead of what I give, nothing's going to change. I saw this just recently in uh, Ted Lasso, which is a good show, and it's a mature show. Uh, so uh, parents, it's a mature show, and adults uh, watch uh, Use Your Freedom Wisely in watching it. But Roy Kent, who's one of the main characters, this is actually in the season that just dropped, um, tells Rebecca, who is the club owner, um, where she's dating this guy who's like kind of meh to her. Like he's great and he checks a lot of boxes, but he, you know, she's kind of not crazy about him. And Roy Kent says to Rebecca, you deserve someone who makes you feel like you've been struck by lightning. And uh, I seriously just want to spend like an hour deconstructing that statement. You deserve someone who makes you feel like someone who has been struck by lightning. Okay, so 
I, um, I have tried, I'm curious, George, that's the, I, I've tried to, you know, and I, and I have, and so my grandma and grandpa and, you know, have been around so many married folks here who've been married for decades. And uh, I've gotten a lot of wisdom, I think a range of wisdom, but what I've never heard from anybody ever say is, Matt, you know what the secret to marriage is? Every day of your life, look over and man, just take in the fact that she makes you feel like you got struck by a bolt of lightning. And I just go, okay, well, does attraction matter? Of, of course, attraction matters. Of course it does. But you know what's a far more compelling, far more believable story? is not this one that we're perpetually discipled into. It's one where you go, hey, what if you consider a God who is all-knowing, all-loving, loves you at your worst, knows the worst you've ever done, and has pledged his covenant faithfulness to you now and forever, and is fully aware to bear with you in the darkest night of your soul. And that God who lacks nothing and needs something, who created you in his image, has given away perpetual love that you can receive and bask in. And as a result of being a recipient of that, you can experience that love, let it heal the deepest wound in your heart and then actually give that love away. So this is what's fascinating. This is what the apostle Paul actually does in Ephesians 5 when he uses this verse I quoted in Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says that it's a mystery. That word mystery means secret. What Paul's actually saying is the whole point of that was to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the relationship between a man and a wife mirrors Christ's love for his church and men are to love their wives in such a way that when you look at Jesus's love, his endless, perpetual, never giving up kind of love, that that should be the basis of your ethic for your wife. And when I think about my life and my 13-year marriage with Dana, I see a a number of mistakes. I see a deeply flawed leader in me, and yet I have been the beneficiary of so much grace and love and mercy from her towards me that I do not deserve. And in that, her loving me, laying down her life for me, and me doing my best to love her has cultivated what I hope is a marriage by God's grace that sustains to the end. And that's what Samson's parents, they don't know all of that. They didn't have the New Testament, right? But that's what they're trying to say, is there's a covenant God who creates a marriage in a covenant way. And Sam, you're walking away from that. You're walking away from that. So what do we do, like, just with application there? Well, a couple thoughts. The first thought is this. Um, If you find yourself in a season where you could humbly acknowledge I am carnal, I am impulsive, and I am allergic to wisdom. That I am spiraling in a pattern of sexual brokenness or I am really walking away from this covenant view of marriage. If that's where you are, you can turn and you can heal. Like the grace of God is what the Lord can heal you. Jesus Christ can heal you. The Holy Spirit can heal. He can heal. Like he can look at the most broken parts of your life and bring grace and mercy and tender care. You do not have to be what you were or what you presently are. God can heal your life. 
And again, you're literally, you're in a room with a number of people who I can look at who are in that process of healing or have gone through that process of healing. So that's the first thing. And that's true whether you're married or you're single, because I know, I mean, guys, part, one of the greatest blessings of being part of that trip to Israel was I got to hang out with a bunch of singles. And, um, you know, one of the things I heard from the singles is, hey, guys, Y'all's illustrations sometimes are like kind of marriage metaphor rich, you know, and there's a lot of us singles in here. So can you kind of, you know, try a little harder to speak to us, which I go, yes, and amen, a hundred out of a hundred times. Yes, you're right. And so marriage, even sex within marriage is a momentary thing. It's a temporal thing. It actually gives way to one beautiful eternal marriage at the end of time between Christ and his church. And, uh, and we don't see covenant marriage between two people in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's actually temporary. And that's an important reminder that it's not the only thing going on. But the sexual purity of this church is both a married and a single issue. And that's why we have to understand that with that reality, we have so much more in common than we do apart, whether we're married or not. Um, and then the only other thing I'll say, and this is uh, just a thought from, from me to you, like there are so many healthy women and there are so many healthy men, relatively healthy women and relatively healthy women, uh, men at Northway Church. And so I think one of the other things that Samson's parents might show us is uh, that you don't have to go looking far and wide for a covenant-minded person. And to the, to the men especially, uh, who we believe should take unique leadership, humble leadership, um, what I'm not saying is that there's anything wrong with dating a lady from another church. What I'm not saying is that there's anything wrong from, uh, with being on an app. Not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that you have a treasure of godly, gracious high character, beautiful women here who would perhaps love the courage of your pursuit if the Lord is leading you to that kind of courage in this kind of time. You don't have to go looking far for a covenant kind of person. Sometimes they're right here in your midst. And I think that's part of what Samson's parents might be showing. So I'm on page two of my notes. So I'm going to keep going. Okay, where all that came from, sorry. Um, Wow. Okay, so Samson is a microcosm of where Israel's at. What do I mean by that? Um, the first judge, Othniel, he fights Israel's enemies and he marries a godly woman. Samson's actually the reverse. He goes into God's enemies and he seeks to marry a woman from that he hardly knows. You're seeing a full capitulation of Israel. Like you're seeing Israel basically concede to the Philistines that they have the right to be their overlords. They say so much in 1511, they are to be rulers over us. That's what they are and we're not gonna fight it. Just don't mess with us. They have forgotten the promises of God, forgotten the commandments of God, and they've conceded the land of the Philistines. To say it succinctly, there's a lot of pig bones in their midst. Okay, let's talk about Samson's Nazarite vow. Okay, so he's supposed to be given to the Lord in the three ways that we've already talked about. So what happens? In 1619, he gets a haircut. Uh, in 14, six through nine, he touches a dead animal. And then in chapter 14, um, uh, he throws a week-long feast. We don't know for certain, but most scholars think that this thing was a bit of a rager, okay, that he threw himself. So this dude has totally walked away from his vow. He's compromised and he rules Israel 
for 20 years, for 20 years. And yet you look at his life. Okay, so he kills a lion that's about to attack him with his hands, the same lion he gets the honey from, the dead animal he touches. Um, He kills 30 Philistines who get in the way of his first marriage. And then he kills a thousand Philistines later with a jawbone. There's other stories of his strength I don't even have time to get into. Like the text is undeniably clear. The spirit of the Lord comes on this dude with power. He is freakishly anointed, freakishly gifted. And so there's two observations here. The first one is that giftedness is not the same thing as character. Giftedness is not the same thing as character. The more God blessed Samson, the more Samson grew confident in his own skill and he forgot the blessing of the Lord. Um, And I think you and I know that some of the most gifted people among us are actually some of the most spiritually shallow. And so please don't judge yourself. I'm saying this to myself too. Let's not judge ourselves by our gifting because some of you have it in spades. Like Stephen King is right. Talent is like table salt. There's a lot of it. And uh, so you don't need to judge yourself by how gifted you are or how much potential you have. Consider your character. Consider your longing for God. Jesus makes it so clear in the parable of the talents that he will give people different giftings and that's okay. Consider your character. So the first point, giftedness is not the same thing as character. And the second point, God will work through us or even in spite of us to his ultimate end. Um, So notice what God is doing in Samson's life. This is fascinating. So Samson and Israel basically wanna coexist with the Philistines and not be distinct. They wanna be compromised. So God is gonna use Samson's life to drive a wedge between these two people. And so toward the end of his life, where we're going, the Philistines are growing to hate him and hate Israel for that matter. And we will see how the Lord uses that. So let's go to chapter 16. And I titled this in my notes, Hey There, Delilah. Sorry, not sorry. Chapter 16, verse four. 16, verse four, okay. So after this, He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. Okay, so Samson learns nothing Nothing as he pursues Delilah, who's basically going to play him like a fiddle, okay? Commentators show at this point, some say, that he is hooked on power as much as he's hooked on women. This dude thinks he's invincible. And Delilah, that she's got something in it for her, she, be, she can become a national hero if she only finds out his strength, okay? So verses 7 through 14, um, this is what happens. Okay, I'm just gonna tell you what happens. Um, she, uh, he tells her, uh, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings, then uh, I can be, I'll become weak like any person. 
That's not what happens. And then she says, and then he says, okay, whatever, new ropes. Get brand new ropes and tie me up and I'll become weak like any person. And so the people descend upon him and he breaks out of it like it's nothing. And he goes, ha ha, and he beats his chest. And, uh, you know, and it's like, yeah, you're not gonna get me. And then the last thing he says is, okay, tie my hair into a weave and put a pin in it. And men lie in wait to ambush him and literally nothing can hold him down. He breaks out of that as well. And yet in this, he's hanging around. He's hanging around. This is verses seven through 14. So let's pick up in verse 15. I'm in chapter 16, verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Notice just the transactional love that they have. Again, this isn't covenant. This is both of them trying to get something from the relationship. And we keep reading in 16. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And to keep going. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the Lord to the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And then the Lord to the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in her hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So she shaves his head and his strength finally leaves. Verse 18. It's so confusing to me that he did not leave that he slept on her lap. Why did he sleep on her lap? He really believed that his strength was his own. And that's because pride comes before the fall. And the Lord leaves him. And the Lord leaves him as weak as anybody, blinded, shackled, and they have their prize, so they think. So they think. Verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. His hair grows back. And here's what's really important to key in on. The Philistines let his hair grow back. They let it grow back. And this side of eternal glory, here's the picture there. The grace of God never really ever goes away. It keeps on coming back. Verses 23 through 7, we're getting into the heart of the story now. Now the Lord to the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice and they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rest, that I may lean against them. 
Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. This is not ultimately a triumph for the Philistines. They have their own pride to deal with. This is the showdown between Dagon, their God, and Yahweh, the God of Israel. And here's the deal. They think that Samson is weak because they ultimately believe that Yahweh is weak. And let's see how Samson responds. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle uh, pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed, or sorry, yeah, he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Samson offers a humble prayer. It's a prayer Shay talked about this last week, that the author of Hebrews notes in the hall of faith, stories of great faith in the Old Testament. You see, Samson has a moment of redemption in his life. In fact, the author of Hebrews said this, that of Samson and others, that they were made strong out of weakness. And so blinded without his own strength, only for the second time on record in the Bible, he prays. And what does he pray? Lord, He uses God's covenant name. He says, remember me, strengthen me. And the irony is that the humble, weak Samson does more to deliver Israel than the strong, fleshly Samson ever could. As the Philistine lords and their false hope in Dagon go down in the dust. And that's why That's why when you look at the life of of Samson, the the parallels to Jesus are so obvious. Jesus is the better Samson, the greater Samson, if you will. And here's the comparison. Both of them were set apart by God before they were born. Both of them die exhausting physical deaths. Samson between two pillars, Jesus between two crosses. And both of them die with outstretched arms. Samson's life of of compromise is redeemed in one final prayer of faith to partially deliver God's people from the Philistines. Whereas Jesus's life, a life without compromise, with one final prayer of faith on the cross to deliver his people from their sins. You see, the gift of Samson was his faith amidst an almost wasted life And the gift of Jesus is his faith amidst a completely perfect life. Samson, with his outstretched arms, sees the Philistine kingdom collapse. And Jesus, with his outstretched arms, sees the kingdom of Satan collapse. Jesus is the hero that Samson's life points to. But what's true of Samson is still true of us, especially by way of compromise. What do I mean by that? Okay, So like Jesus, God can work through our obedience, our lack of compromise, leading to fullness of joy and blessing to others, or God can actually work through our compromises like Samson to achieve his own ends. But one, I promise you, leads to a lot more joy. As I have excavated my life this week, I have found some pig bones. 
Uh, I still am a man of compromise. I'm still a man that has to repent of my sins. I'm still a man who is not yet who I want to be. And in the midst of that, I am so overcome by the grace of God who is graciously calling me to more. And I hope you sense that calling on your life as well. We are called to live distinct lives, not because we're better, but because we are different. And through our differences, we can show the world a better way. And so Samson's life shows us three things that I see. One, being impulsive and allergic to wisdom leads to disaster and not joy. The second thing is that giftedness is not the same thing as character. People with plenty of spiritual promise can still waste their lives. And then the last thing is that God can do great things through our weakness, assuming we're humble enough to show it. Where can we humbly acknowledge compromise in our lives, leave it behind, and walk further into the joy that comes from obedience, further away from our old life with Samson and further into our new life with Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the redemptive life of Samson. Thank you that at the very end, he did not waste all of it, Lord, that he offers his life as a sacrifice And in doing so, you bring the deliverance that you promise early on in his life, a partial deliverance pointing to a perfect deliverance in Christ Jesus uh, in whom we trust, Lord. And so my prayer is that uh, even in taking the Lord's Supper, that we would be able to uh, be strengthened and nourished by the grace of God uh, in this moment. Lord, help us, help us, Lord, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.